Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. Well, let me just double check the resume if I could, David, because I always like to make sure I'm giving updated information. It's the journalist in me, too. Uh, So you are still an active senior producer for CBSNews.com? Yes, I am. And uh, CBS is an Emmy Award-winning morning news magazine, Sunday Morning. Yes. Oh, great. Okay, good. Well, then we are we are current. I like that. Sometimes I'll, I'll get a bio and then I'll read it and I'll find out, oh, I retired last year or something. So yeah. I didn't have a chance to talk before we went on. Uh, but, but at the same time, uh, David Morgan is also a, a writer on culture and on film and uh, on entertainment and has been uh, featured and published in many uh, uh, places across the country, which you would all know, including now we can add Coast to Coast AM on top of that. Uh, I'm a big Monty Python fan. Did you start off a Monty Python fan, David? Oh, yes, when I was in short pants as a, as a kid. Uh, it debuted here in in the States in 1974, but even before that a little bit, um, it became uh, popular on radio stations, particularly college radio stations, because the record album sort of preceded the series Monty Python's Flying Circus. And that's how I first heard of it. And um, in the mu- in the months before it actually uh, played on public television here, uh, bits of it were incorporated into a summer uh, replacement series on NBC called Dean Martin's Comedy World. They got the rights to use a, a few bits in that uh, in that series. So that was the first time it was really seen here in the states. Yeah, and I kind of lived that too. I was a freshman in high school, and there was a kid in my neighborhood who had who had the album. He had come back yeah. from England, and uh, so he was. We were in his bedroom, and he was playing cuts of this. And we we there was like two or three of us, and we circled that night that it was going to debut on the uh, PBS affiliate in Chicago. And what was true about that experience for me is there was this small group of us cultists from the very beginning that were just like went crazy about the show mostly because i think in the first episode we saw here there was a topless woman in it so that was enough for us at 14 we we were booking that every week (laughs) we were booking that every week but the uh but then then we saw it grow and so like at the beginning of the semester there was just this little private little thing but before the year was over suddenly everybody was talking about monty python and we felt like uh we felt like we were way ahead of the curve on that yeah it started here in the states in 74 on maybe a dozen pbs stations and in a year it was in a hundred markets and by that time the movie uh, monty python the holy grail had opened so it, it it really exploded in terms of a fan base, and it was a much larger uh, fan base than they ever had in England. They 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 initially thought Python humor would never play in the states, and it right. turned out that it became their largest audience. You know, it's interesting when you're reading the the book uh, again, uh, David's book, Monty Python Speaks: The Complete Oral History Revised and Updated Edition. You you see how early on though as they recount their history how much they valued the fact that there was one american in the group and that their humor was playing with with him and that uh, they liked the edginess of having an american as part of the original python set yeah and one of the things that stands out by the, with the shows now and it's been 50 years since it debuted on the crazy was that That's... they rarely dealt with topical humor 
or 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 mentioning people who were in the news at that time. Every once in a while, there'll be a mention of someone like Margaret Thatcher. Right. But you didn't. You don't have to know what was going on in England in the 1960s in order to get their humor, to get any jokes. They they dealt primarily with archetypes. Uh, you know. Uh, police officers, military figures, people in positions of authority. And that's something that's recognizable in any culture, in any country, at any time. So that's why the humor is timeless. And it's it's still funny today, even 50 years later. You know, while yes, that's true, there were also a couple of people that they did mention who I kind of filed away, even as a kid, they would use some recurring media personalities or politicians as punchlines, you know, they were sort of a, like in the old days where people used to say Tommy Newsom, you know, got, was always yeah. getting referenced on the Tonight Show. And so like Reginald Maudling, right? Yeah. There was, and so there would just be a name that I remember later on asking like, who is this guy and why is that funny? <laughs> you know, because... Well, he benefits from the fact of having a somewhat humorous sounding name, even though exactly a, a, a man of power in England at that time. Yeah. Um, so, so let, let me pick it. I'll get. I'll drill back into that a little bit later on. But let me also ask you though about with the state of comedy in the '70s in America when Monty Python went viral. Mm-hmm. How would you describe it? Pretty sad. <laughs> yeah. In in terms of American television, it was very much the calm. And there was a, a sort of opening up, uh, a loosening of the rules when Norman Lear started things like On the Family and Maud. Right. And that's when TV censorship started to get rolled back a little bit. I mean, the, the shows were so popular, so the censors couldn't really argue against it when Archie Bunker would say, you really filed Right. Right, um, but the forms of the television shows were very, uh, very conventional. The, the sitcoms they had characters uh, every week. They would have catchphrases. They would have uh, set uh, plots. Uh, and if it were a comedy show, like a sketch show, a variety show, there there would be um, setups and punchlines. Uh, it, it was all very uh, tame and standard, and Python really broke all those rules. They broke all those conventions. Uh, they didn't, for, for one thing, they realized they didn't need a punchline. If they had a really good setup, they just used the setup, and they, then they went on to the next thing. Yeah. So for something like um, Ministry of Silly Walks, it's a, it's a hilarious concept of a government agency devoted to silly walks. And they have fun with that, and then they're off on to the next thing. They don't have to worry about what is the punchline of this of this concept. Yeah, and and, and, and that's and that's something you didn't see on on television at right. the time. No, I agree. But since you brought up all in the family, and I think that the observation is was kind of the gold standard for American comedy, and it was funny. Um, Sanford and Son. Mm-hmm. was also funny and both of those were american inter- uh, interpretations of british shows so yep. we were we were importing british comedy we were just you know heavily stamping it with uh you know into our culture using a um you know a kind of a different lens monty python was the first time i you know other than as you mentioned it had gotten included in a couple little bits earlier in that summer but it was the first time people i think in america really got a look at what other 
people who speak our same language found funny, and it was yeah. different than what we were laughing at. Yeah. Um, there was the import of the British, uh, of the BBC radio series, The Goon Show, in the 1950s, and that was True. still running in the 70s. And that's sort of the, the grandfather of Python in terms of their humor, because that also, it, it used no standard conventions. It was just wild. And because it was a radio show, they weren't showing anything. The humor got really wild. Like they would do shows about how somebody had uh, eaten a mountain. You know, right. something right. he could have done on television very easily. Um, yeah, but now that would be a reality yeah, series. Yeah, there wasn't, but there wasn't much in the way of British, I mean, there was British drama. Right. The theater, that's what people right. thought of as British television. Uh, yeah, and then something really point. silly like Python comes on and it proves to be even more popular on PBS than Masterpiece Theater. Yeah, you know, and I think that... Um, Again, we're talking with David Morgan. The book is uh, Monty Python Speaks. It's a revised oral history. And uh, we'll do open lines coming up later on tonight. But I, I, I've been looking forward to this because I, 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 love, I love oral histories in general because I think it's, uh, it's a, it is, there's, nothing, there's nothing more insightful than the people who experienced it. And sometimes it's interesting to see them talk about it in a reflective mood, which is what I like a lot about what you have here is that had you interviewed them all in the same context 40 years ago, it would have been a little more flinty. It would have been a little more chirpy because they weren't getting along, but now they can look back on their disagreements with a certain amount of perspective. And I think that that, that too is very entertaining because it sounds like a bunch of old guys sitting around still kind of making up to each other a little bit for times where they went over the edge um, on yeah. each other. Back in the old days when we made comedy. <laughs> right. But you, but let, let, let's take a look at, from a different standpoint, too, is that Monty Python, as much as you are you're correct in, in saying that, you know, it blew bigger here than it did in England, it was still a sensation in England. And it was a sensation immediately in the sense that you know, John Cleese, the, uh, you know, who was just a cast member was suddenly spinning out into his own show. And, you know, the, everybody recognized that it was a, it was a hit in England. And, and I think that part of the reflection as they talk about was they weren't sure how this was going to work on television there either. And they, it wasn't, no. a, it wasn't a guarantee. It wasn't like they're going, Oh, well, this is, everybody's waiting for this show. <laughs> they, 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 oh, didn't, no. they didn't know it was going to last more than, than, you know, 10 episodes. And they couldn't predict it based on what they had done on British television prior to Python. Uh, they, right. they were all familiar faces uh, uh, working on uh, David Frost series. Uh, uh, John Cleese did a show with Marty Feldman for a while. Right. Um, the others, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, Eric Idle, uh, they were also in a series, Do Not Adjust Your Set. Um, and and so they were familiar, but they, but they were, again, you know, kind of typical series in a way where they would have sketches or they also wrote sketches for other TV shows. Um, so when they, dis when they were uh, invited to do their own show, the, the six of them, uh, they, they were given free reign by the BBC. They didn't really quite know what they were going to do. And they went to the BBC and the BBC asked them, well, what do you want to do? And they were like, well, we're not really sure. Um, but the BBC gave them 13 half hours to fill. Right. And so they came up with this very anarchic approach where they would just throw a lot of comic ideas onto the screen and they would 
be linked by these animations by Terry Gilliam into this sort of stream of consciousness flow of comic ideas. And there might be a theme to the ideas, there might not, but it didn't matter. It was just like a bombardment of all this silliness in a way. Right. And, and but, it, was, it, it was incredibly fresh, and it was unlike anything that was on television at the time. So, yeah, it was a tremendous hit in England. But the BBC didn't quite fully appreciate it because they couldn't quite understand it. They, they were looking at it through the lens of something like Dad's Army, which was a very sort of stodgy sitcom. Uh, they weren't looking at, at it as something new. And right. so they didn't really appreciate it. They put it on really late at night. Uh, at the beginning, it wasn't even accessible in all areas of England. <laughs> like some areas, the stations wouldn't carry it. They'd carry something else. But that's probably um, better for them. I mean, because that, that, that scarcity creates demand. And it's oh, yeah. just like when they release a movie, right? And it's only in six theaters across the country, and but it's getting great reviews. You've got to drive to see it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, but the let's, I'm not, I don't want to put too fine a point on the whole nudity thing, but that that was unusual in american uh, watching on an american television especially on pbs i mean it would be as though in upstairs downstairs you know some woman took off her top walking down the stairs or something but it didn't happen and so no. it, in that uh, you know the that that sketch that memorable sketch of the the you know the life of a chartered accountant when there's n- nudity shown for the first time do you have any, I mean, I've always curious, was there a public reaction? Was there a moral panic about it? Um, did PBS have to reposition itself to say, we're going to give it a, you know, we'll, we'll talk to them about that in England or something. I mean, did, was there any kind of outcry about that? Well, there wasn't an, an issue with PBS so much here because they had slightly looser standards than the three broadcast networks. I suppose. Yeah. And, but um, still unusual. They could get away with it. But it was still unusual. Mm-hmm. But it, well, it was certainly unusual in terms of comedy. Right. I mean, I think there had been some dramatic things on PBS at that time where there was some nudity. But, of course, it was being like it was dramatic. It was right. like, artistically important, uh, not a gag. So, right. Um, yeah, and I think they were I, able to get away with it. On PBS, when they when uh, six of the Python shows were sold to ABC, that was a different matter. Oh, and, that, that, and that's those a, were, were cut uh, cut to shreds. Oh, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I really did. I for, completely. When were when did ABC get their hands on a, on six of them? Well, about a year after it debuted on PBS, ABC wanted to buy six of the shows, which was their last series, the fourth series. For, for the BBC, they wanted to uh, air them late at night, like at 11:30, and uh, so they bought them from the BBC. And the Pythons didn't really—they weren't—they didn't really have a hand in it. Um, but what happened was, of course, that they took three episodes and three episodes—that's 90 minutes. But first of all, you have to cut out like 25 minutes for commercials, right? And then secondly, what is it that they were cutting out? Uh, they were cutting out, of course, of course, all the naughty bits. They were cutting out um, language. Um, but they were also cutting out things that ABC decided was offensive or that <laughs> might cause offense. Um, it, 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 the most ridiculous uh, 
version of that is that there was an animated bit where Graham Chapman is talking about the Montgolfier brothers, these balloon enthusiasts. Right. I remember um, that bit. Yeah. Bath, and they're going, he, he washed their arms, their legs, and their naughty bits. And ABC cut out the words naughty bits because that was naughty. Right, which was the whole point of using a euphemism in the first place. They cut really? out the euphemism. And there, <laughs> yeah, and then there was another bit where Graham Chapman uh, starts getting uh, aroused when he, he talks about uh, erotic words, and Eric Idle dumps a bucket of water onto him to cool him off. So they cut that section. So when you watch the sketch on ABC, you see Graham Chapman sitting in the chair perfectly dry, and then it cuts to him getting up out of the chair and he's soaking wet. What happened? Yeah. When the, when the Pythons saw what they had done to the first uh, grouping of shows, they sued ABC to prevent them from airing the second group of three shows, and they took them to court in New York City. And they were claiming that it was it was basically damaging the brand of Monty Python. Yeah, right. And the ultimate uh, upshot of the court case is that the Pythons won control of all their TV shows, which is something that was unheard of. So interesting. You know, on uh, Friday nights is when we, we spend uh, have a little fun with culture here on Coast to Coast, and I'm very much going to enjoy this. And I, I will get to open lines coming up later on, and you never know where that's going to go, but usually people will reflect back later on on some of the topics that we talked about previously. And I just, that I've already started getting a lot of tweets. People have been sending me messages about their favorite Monty Python moments, but also how, you know, they keep referring to how Monty Python changed American humor and that it, 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 it also was as the goon show was, you know, the voice in the wilderness for Monty Python that was coming. Monty Python also, um, you know, fertilized the ground for uh, Benny Hill. And a lot of, uh, that even with that nudity piece again, or even with the naughty bits and all that other stuff, that, that it seemed like Benny Hill came then in American television and amped that up one degree, you know, a few degrees after Monty Python, that Benny Hill never would have made it perhaps if it, if it had come here first. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.